And so I'd like you to really consider, you know, if you got to say what I was to talk about now, what would you like me to talk about? Or if you have a question that's really vital, that's alive and meaningful, you know, and you could ask the deepest question or the hardest question or the most vital or alive or juicy question, uh, um, you know, let's do it tonight. Um, and it also, it really helps me get a sense of what's happening for people as the group's gotten bigger. So I like to do this kind of back and forth. So take a minute and really think about what, what is it, what would be really, what would you want to hear or know about right now? What question do you have about the Dharma, about your practice, about the meditation? And I like, I like the idea of everybody has to come up with one question. And then if nobody raises their hand, I can just start calling on people. Okay? And you'll be ready. I won't surprise you totally. Here we go. So the questions about mental illness and how how mental illness is understood from a Buddhist perspective. Um, you would uh, generally in Asia you would hear it talked about. Uh, a lot in terms of energies and winds and imbalances. And maybe, maybe let me back up one step. First context is it's understood as suffering. It's one of the forms of suffering that happens for human beings is that things go astray. Things go off. Things don't work right. And this happens with the body and it happens with the, the mind or the orientation for people. Um, so it's not that the Buddha talked so much about mental illness, but he did talk about how people suffer and the different ways that people suffer. And people suffer through grief and fear and sadness. And, you know, the Buddha didn't use a term like depression, but sadness or melancholy or being forlorn. Those were all, you know, mind states that were known to people forever. And so there's not the clinical technology that we have in the West, but there's still within the sense of um, what's the state of mind and what's the state of understanding and how one's perception relates to reality, that's all within the... the, the um, teachings of the Buddha and whether it, it's causing suffering or not. So the bottom line is always about suffering. Um, generally, um, you'll hear very different kind of treatment, especially from the East. You know, uh, a lot of different um, uh, 
so, so in Thailand, especially, there's a lot of fear of ghosts. And so somebody might, we might have a, quote, mental illness of being afraid a ghost is after them. And, you know, depending on the teacher, like Ajahn Chah, you know, sometimes he would have them come and do metta practice and loving kindness practice to help stabilize the mind, calm the body, relax the heart, and then see that things are okay. Or sometimes he would do something more radical. He would start talking about, well, I think tonight you should go sit in the cemetery. In the, in the charn, not cemetery, in the charnel ground where the bodies are burned, where there's supposed to be a lot of ghosts. And so there'd be all kinds of interventions depending on the person and the relationship between the teacher and the person. And especially if the teacher knows the person, knows their capacities or knows them well enough so that they might do a, an unobvious intervention, they would do it. And again, it's more in a community setting. It's in the village setting. And so it's different than here where people, quote, with mental illness often end up isolated out and away and separate from. Um, and it gives a different possibility for treatment when there's that kind of community setting. Um, does that give a little bit of an answer to what you're looking for? Okay. And I especially want to encourage people who maybe have never asked the question here tonight. You know, if you're shy, you can ask a shy question. You can be shy. You don't have to stop being shy, but you can still ask a question or come forward. Okay. And if you could stand, please. So the question is about the role of sleep and mindfulness practice in general. Well, sleep is, is good. <laughs> good to sleep, and it's good to wake up. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, in, when you say in mindfulness practice, there are different forms that mindfulness practice will take, like you know, we're in a day-to-day -day form here of being in our lives. And so sleep becomes part of what one of the important pieces for sleep in terms of mindfulness is balance. If you're working, you're taking care of family or friends and you have a very full kind of modern busy life, then one of the things that will be helpful will be to have a certain amount of sleep just in terms of balance it'll help your mindfulness be more imbalanced as you go through a busy day, if, you're, if you have an appropriate amount of rest for the body. If you're on retreat, if you go on an intensive retreat, one of the things that happens quite naturally, not, not for everybody, but actually for, for many people, is that you start to need less and less sleep. In other words, so I'll go on retreat, and the first thing I do is sleep as much as I want for the first day or two. 
just to get over the jet lag of slowing down from the pace of life that we're at now and being on retreat where the pace of life is very simple, very slow. And so I'll sleep as much as I need to. And then after a couple days, I start not needing... uh, I might sleep a day or two normally, you know, seven hours, six hours. And then actually my need for sleep will go down. And then the sleep will be like maybe five hours or four hours sometimes. And certain teachers, you know, sleep very little. Certain people, Ajahn Jumnian, who is just at Spirit Rock, he says mostly he sleeps a couple hours a night. You know, he doesn't need, he's been practicing for, you know, 45 years now, so he doesn't need a lot of sleep. But if you haven't been practicing for 45 years, um, it's good to get some sleep. <laughs> and, um, and then there's a secondary possibility, which is um, there are um, dream yogas. So sleep yogas or sleep practices, and it's really about lucid dreaming. And in that kind of practice, uh, from a meditative perspective, um, what one wants to cultivate is the ability to be aware one is dreaming, right? Wake up in the dream, and you know you're dreaming, and then be mindful in the dream. And that's a certain form of practice. And generally that it can happen for people in daily lives. You can do that. It's possible. It's harder. It happens a little more uh, readily for people on retreat. So you're already practicing, you know, 14, 16 hours a day, 20 hours a day sometimes. And then when you go to sleep, you, pra- you, you, ha- you make the intention to be awake in your dreams. And then when you do get awake, when the dream becomes lucid, then you want to be mindful in the dream. Does that describe a little bit? Is that what you're asking about those areas? And that is, I don't know a lot of people who do that practice. It's more, more a minority of people who do the lucid dreaming practice. But it is possible and I don't, I don't know much written about it. I know more in the te- Tibetan tradition there's a really good book about dream yoga by uh, Tenzin Wangal, who's a, a bon, B-O-N, Bonpo um, uh, Tibetan master. Thank you. relationship between trust and Buddhism, my experience. I trust it very much. (laughs) You want a little more than that? Okay. 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 So the the word trust might be um, more, uh, might be translated slightly differently in Buddhism. Might be the word faith might be more used more more um, readily, um, and it's it's and there are different kinds of faith or trust in Buddhism. There's what's called bright faith, which is an initial sense of trust 
that, oh, there's something good here. And it's like when you first meet the teachings and you read about them and and they make sense. And then one of the things people like about mindfulness practice in general and the teachings of the Buddha is they make a lot of sense. They're commonsensical to us when we get them. And so there's a kind of trust or faith. Oh, this is good. This is good. I want to learn about this. I want to see what this is. And then there's... um, um, another level of faith or trust that happens through practice. And this is um, what's called a verified faith. And this is the kind of trust that comes when you sit down and you apply the teachings and you see that they work in your own experience. Not just because they look good on the page or they make sense or somebody you know, you might have some kind of trust or faith because somebody's inspiring. The Dalai Lama might inspire a certain trust or faith. And that's a really good thing. But it's not the trust or faith of, um, of verified faith. And that's considered the, the, the um, uh, richest faith. That's the faith that'll take you through the difficulties because that's the faith that you know and nobody can take that from you. Nobody can deny that no matter what happens. You know when you've sat with something that's difficult, when you've, um, when something's awoken in you, awakened in you, and that when that happens, even though it doesn't stay as a permanent state, nobody can take that away from you. That generates a tremendous amount of faith when you hit a certain level of samadhi or, or relaxation of concentration and your body dissolves and you see that the whole idea of, um, of being a person is a constructed idea and that there's something uh, here but it's not just an idea then there's a kind of faith that comes that's very potent, very beautiful and very heartfelt. And that's a real trust in the Dharma. Real, and then it, it's not just faith. or it, it really, it's the heart quality. Both trust and faith really are about courage, uh, the heart. Um, and courage is a part of that. It, gives, it encourages us. It gives us courage. And it gives us a certain kind of strength and power um, uh, and love of the Dharma. Is that a little more what you were... An experience in my own practice. There's been innumerable experiences. I'll tell you one of my first experiences. This was on my first retreat, long retreat. Like, let me see if I want to tell you that one or something else. <laughs> no, it's a good one. No, it's a good one. I'll, I'll give you a good one. Something good. I'll start there and I'll see if anything else comes forward. Um, So I'd been sitting for four or five days on my first long retreat, maybe six days. It was a 10-day retreat. And and I was new to practice and I was trying to learn how to do it and I was having a tremendous amount of pain in my knees and I was sitting on the cushion. And, um, And I was watching people get 
settled around me. You know, there were people there who had more experience, they knew what they were doing, and, and you, could, you could feel it. The people sitting around, they were like, I'm like, how are they doing that? I, you know, I couldn't figure it out. And the instructions were, you know, kind of, uh, there was more encouragement to sit without moving. And so I made this little vow. I thought, okay, I'm going to sit one sitting without moving. And I hadn't been able to do that because of the pain and uncomfortable and itchy and, you know, restless and agitated. And so I vowed to sit this one sitting. And I got up this morning and it was, it was probably the first sitting in the morning. And I was sitting and I was sitting and, and the pain in my knees got strong. And so I really started to do what the, I've been told to do, which is name it, note it, feel it, stay present with it, notice the reaction to it, note it, keep labeling it, pain, pain. You know, then, then as you stay closer to the pain, you start to see, oh, pain is quite a big word, that there's more um, refined, the, the awareness becomes more refined and you can start to feel, oh, it's not just pain, it's aching. And so you, you name it then aching, aching, and then you, it's, oh, it's not aching, it's twisting, 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 then it's pinpricks, pricking, pricking, and then it's burning, 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 throbbing, ripping, tearing, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm sitting with this and I'm also noting my reaction. And my reaction is, oh, I hate this, ring the bell, ring the bell, please ring the bell, shit, shit, ow, ow, ripping, you know, and I'm doing, and I'm doing the practice that is the, you know, very traditional mindfulness practice of, of naming or noting what's happening as it's happening and staying present with it. And then... And then I start to feel the pain moving a bit, and it's, oh, that's interesting, it's moving. And then, and then I can feel something starts to happen. And, and I didn't know enough to name it, but I could feel it like, like it wasn't so painful, quite so painful. It was still painful, but it wasn't quite so painful. And I'm still noting it, burning, burning, throbbing, throbbing. And then at some point they rang the bell, and it was like the pain went away, and my knee went away, and I went away. And it was good. <laughs> and, and I couldn't stop being mindful that day at all. And, and it, it was like I moved to a whole different level, or something happened. I, I mean, it could be more precise now, but it was like, and then, and I remember getting up and walking, it was like a whole other thing to just walk. And then I remember in the eating, how slow the eating, it was just like, and just to be there. My mind wasn't somewhere else anymore. My mind wasn't thinking about anything else anymore. It wasn't in the past, it wasn't in the future. It wasn't even in the present so much. The eating was there, the knowing of it was there, but it wasn't even so much a cognitive thinking about knowing. It just, you're there, awake. There's a, an awakeness there. And this is just, you know, this is just one thing and, and, and it was really lovely. It, and I learned a lot about, oh, pain because pain is workable is one of the things that I've found. And then, 
And so that gave me a tremendous amount of faith to like, okay, where does this go? Actually, first I went, at the end of the day, I went to the teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and I, I, I told him what happened, and he, he was checking it out a little bit. And then I said, and I was very naive, I was like, am I going to be like this forever? <laughs> and he said, no, don't, don't, no, you won't be like this forever, don't worry about that. He said, but I'd like to get you on the three-month course. And that was, that was Joseph's response. <laughs> but, um, you know, and that's like one example. I could give another example. And a lot of it has to do with pain or difficulty or suffering, especially in the early part of my practice. Seeing that I could sit with grief. Seeing that I could sit with fear. And that they're, they're just mind states, heart states. They're not... They're not solid. They're not absolute reality. They are states of heart and mind. They can shake us. They're difficult. I don't mean to at all be um, disrespectful of how painful they can be, but they're workable. And then to see that is very powerful. And then also in practice, I've had just a lot of bliss or happiness or joy or freedom and that brings a tremendous amount of trust also you know so it's a whole span of experiences if if you practice with any sincerity the dharma will teach you life will teach you it's all sitting right there in your seat Mm, beautiful. Okay, so the question, um, the context is that in terms of um, her practice related to uh, both prayer and higher power is uh, there's a sense of synchronicity that is very important to you, very valuable. I think there's not specifically that term. I don't know if that term was even coined at the time of the Buddha, synchronicity, I wonder. But I, I think... Pardon? Yeah, Carl, Young. Carl Young, okay. So, I think the term that would be used in Buddhism is karma. And karma is very important in Buddhism. And karma is often misunderstood. We have a kind of popular understanding of karma. And I'd like to offer a simple understanding, but one that I think is important. Karma means actions have consequences. That, our, that what we do has consequences. But what's important to remember, that's not the only karma. There's the karma of what we do, but there are other forces that are karmic forces that are beyond us. So it means we actually don't control everything, but we have some input into how things work, how things connect up, what unfolds. 
and the more in alignment we are both with ourselves and with the other karmic forces then there might be certain kinds of synchronicity that's a little bit how I would think about it but um, there's another level to talk about it about um, there is an understanding of the perfection of reality that reality is perfect absolutely perfect but that to really get that one needs to really see from a very deep place generally very hard for us to see that we tend to see what's wrong with the world and say oh it's not perfect but that's not the perfection that realization or the dharma or true nature is seeing from and the analogy that's used it's like a body that has cancer right we would say oh that's not perfect right that's like the opposite of perfect and it's true on the relative level that body is in dis-ease but uh, the cells are out of balance right they have cancer but from the perspective of the atoms there is no problem everything is all those atoms are fine and so it's a question of, of the depth of one's realization to see the perfection or then the synchronicity of everything or it might even even the term might go beyond synchronicity it's a little bit like looking one example is like if you look at a, a tapestry like this and you see the design and the figure and the colors and the shapes you know you can see all the different pieces that make it up but if you look at the it's all one thing and if you see the oneness of things then there is a perfection even though there's the particulars you don't have to worry about this too much <laughs> but, but it's, good to, it's good to consider from time to time because mostly we look from the relative perspective and in the relative perspective you know there's a lot that's wrong but from the ultimate perspective I, I, I don't think we would say that does that give you some okay Anybody have that question? <laughs> You're not alone. It's a really great question, an important question, an important practice. Um, so one of the things that's really helpful if you want to love somebody and not be attached to them is practice meditation. In other words, practice just sitting by yourself and learning how to be with your experience and see it come and go and to see the nature of experience itself so that you're not even trying exactly to 
not be attached. Much more the, the idea is, oh, let's see what the truth is and then come into alignment with the truth. And from that way of thinking, when we see the truth, the truth is we can't hold on to anything. And when we really understand that in a very deep way, it makes it much easier to not be attached. A lot of times people hear the teachings of non-attachment and they're, they're beautiful and important teachings, but then people try to do it mechanically. Like, okay, I'm not going to get attached to this, even though my heart, right, like all I want is this, you know, these flowers. You know, these beautiful flowers. I just love them and I want them and I want to keep them near me. And, but no, I should, I should not be attached, so I'm not going to look at them and I'm not going to smell them. And, and, and the problem with that is then we cut off from our heart. And then we never really learn how to hold things, embrace things, love things fully, and then learn in the process the truth that those flowers are not going to stay, no matter how much I love them. Those flowers are going to come and go, as is the nature of everything in, in reality. And then when, when that understanding, when that deep truth of impermanence really begins to... Uh, uh, permeate us then it's a different it's, then not only can we love but we can love and appreciate even more how temporal that experience is and you know one of the other pieces that's important is I don't think you can learn how to be not attached in love without being in love without being in the experience you, we're not going to learn it beforehand and then, oh, and then fall in love in a detached way. <laughs> right? I, I don't think it works that way. So I encourage people, fall in love. And then stay present. Be mindful in that experience. And you'll see what attachment looks like. And, and you, one of the things we'll see is all our fears. All our ideas about, oh, we have to have somebody in order to be okay. And that's one of the teachings of being in relationship is that actually we're okay anyways even if we think we're not it's a practice it's a beautiful practice and it's a practice you can do with friends and with lovers and with family you can do it in committed relationship or whatever form it's a practice you know, one of, one of the great blessings about having a child is they're very clear, usually by the time of 14 or 16 or 17, they're leaving. They're, they're on their way out. And, and that, that's a, it's a really great place to practice because if you try to hold on, it's a problem, right? It's, you know, it's a problem. Either it's a problem for them in that it stifles them, or it's a problem for you because they're going to rebel. So there's a lot of great places to practice in love. Okay? Enjoy. Enjoy. Enjoy that practice. And there's a nice book by Thich Nhat Hanh. Anybody know the name of his book? It starts with him falling in love. He's a monk, but he falls in love with a nun. And it's beautiful. 
it's just beautiful because he's so honest about it you know about the, how he said he says it's something like this he saw her you know and saw her coming up the steps and then she went in and you know and he, and he was that was it he was taken and he said he something like he went back to his room and he said and my meditation was disturbed <laughs> <laughs> like he just couldn't follow his breath right then you know, and it's it's a beautiful book. Does anybody know the name? I can't remember the name. I'll try to I'll try to find it for next week. So the question's about what's called the, in psychology, the pursuer-distancer phenomena in relationship. Like one person's coming forward or attached, and the other person's going away. And then the first person, oh, all of a sudden doesn't care so much. And then the other person starts coming forward. But if you're in the position of the other person's attached, and you're not so much, how do you work with not being reactive? How do you do that, Bridget? <laughs> no, no. Make space. Well, what do you see? How do you understand attachment? Their attachment. What do you see? What's happening for them? They're grasping, right? Uh huh. It's uncomfortable yeah. to see it. What What's uncomfortable about it? Um, it's very raw. Yeah. Uh huh. So you know, one of the things that's really helpful when you're having a reaction to somebody, it's good to see as clearly as possible what are you reacting to, and then to see. Oh, and then to ask this question: Are they suffering? And if they're suffering, see through the lens of suffering, even for a minute. Like just see that the person who's grasping is, is suffering. And then notice what happens when you see through the Dharma lens. Oh, oh they're suffering. And I know for myself, you know, it's easy to react to many people. But when I see that people are suffering, it really undercuts my reactivity. It's like, oh, they're suffering. And then it's a whole different... It may not be the style of suffering I like. <laughs> right? You know, some sufferings we have more appreciation for and some less. Um, I'll, I'll give a very personal example. Uh, somebody in my family is bipolar and was in a manic phase. And it was really, you know, it's not... It's not my favorite energy to be around. Uh, but as soon as I could see she was suffering, and it's a whole, and it's one of the things like people who are bipolar and are manic 
people react tremendously because they're not easy to be around. That's a very hard energy to be around in general. But if you can see, oh, this is somebody who's suffering, it doesn't mean you have to like what they're doing or, or even uh, agree to what they're doing. But it, it means you don't have to react, you can respond instead. And you might need to make boundaries and say, no, this is not appropriate. But you're not coming from an aversive place. And, and I want to be careful here, because it doesn't mean your aversion just goes away. It means you're able to be mindful of your aversion and not simply be caught by your aversion and not be reacting from the aversion. Now, the aversion can be there. I don't like you know that, that energy. But when I see the suffering, I'm not just reacting. So see what happens if you, if you happen to know anybody who's grasping in relationship. <laughs> if you start to see that they're suffering and see what happens to your heart in response. In the back. Yes, you. Yeah, no, no, it's a really good question. That's very... Um, so the question's about, um, you know, how is it to practice with people who aren't practicing or be in relationship with people who aren't practicing? And there's the encouragement to be with like-minded people in the, in the Buddhist teachings and people who practice and the value of that. And, you know, am I supposed to cut everybody else out? And no, you're not supposed to cut everybody else out. Um, but it does mean it does mean to pay attention to what happens to you when you're with people who aren't practicing and what that reaction might be. Because there's the reaction to whatever they might be doing, but sometimes there's like a spiritual reaction. Oh, they they don't practice. Yeah, well, you know. Maybe I'll come back and talk to you when you're practicing. <laughs> Instead of relating to the person like they're a human being and you're a human being. And it's true. They may have some limitations. But it may also be true that we have some limitations still, too. And so I think it's really important to not let that idea separate us from anybody. Even though there might be some truth to that maybe they're not so aware. And then what happens if that if you see that objectively? We we all have our limitations. If we're to deny our limitations, we're gonna deny the truth. If we if we deny others' limitations, we deny the truth. Can we be in relationships that have both symmetry and asymmetry? 
because all relationship has symmetry and asymmetry. On one level, we're totally equal. On another level, we're totally unique. This is just the truth. Can we live with the truth rather than imposing some idea about how others are supposed to be, how we're supposed to be, how reality is supposed to be? Can we actually get present here with people as they are and then see and stay present and awake so we can respond appropriately? In terms of more intimate relationship, maybe you don't want to be in intimate relationship with somebody who's not practicing. But even that, I, I, every relationship has its pluses and minuses. You know? the, the, the nice part of practicing with someone, uh, who, being in relationship with someone who doesn't practice, is you might have a broader range of perceptions at times, a broader range of understanding, of input. Um, and of course, the plus of being in relationship with somebody who practices is you have a shared understanding that is very beautiful. So I, w I would be very careful about making any artificial boundaries, but being willing to look at the truth of each person, including ourselves, of the limitations that we all have. Maybe one more, way in back, yeah. Wait, wait, you're saying being ashamed because you had a total lack of mindfulness? Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Again, don't do it. No more, no more self-judgment, self-flagellation, shame. That's the first answer. The second is, um, um, it's very common. We seem to live in a society where that is um, a, a pandemic you know, that it's been internalized, that most of us have a very strong self-critic. Um, we keep holding ourselves up to some standard that I don't know who made it up, but we hold ourselves to a standard and then we never meet that standard. Or then we meet it and we think we're like the best for, you know, a day or two. And then when, when it changes, we fall again. Um, but it's it's part of the... Psychologically, if you look, the Freudians have, would have a picture. They would have um, a big circle as the ego. And then inside, they would have a smaller circle of the id or the instinctual energies. 
And on the big circle, on top, they would have a small circle which they called the superego, or the judge, or the critic. And the function of the superego is to keep the ego in place, keep it coherent. Um, so one of the practices one can do is to start to be mindful of self-criticism and not believe it. And see what happens if you don't believe it. And really start to see what, what are you taking, who are you taking yourself to be? What is it making you? How is it shaping you? And what happens if you don't have to believe those thoughts? Because they're just thoughts. They're very strong thoughts, generally, meaning we believe them very much. And often they're very unconscious. We'll just feel bad about ourselves. So first of all, make them conscious as possible. Let's see, what is it we're believing, thinking? Why are we feeling... If you're feeling bad about yourself, there's some judgment in play. Otherwise, why would you feel bad? You're doing the best you can. Everybody got that? No, I mean quite seriously. Everybody's doing the best they can. You, nobody would, nobody, nobody is not doing the best they can. So if we start to deconstruct the judgment or the superego, often we'll actually feel a little shaky because it really has a lot of input on how we know ourselves and how the sense of self is held in place. There's some really good books that are helpful. Book um, um, Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock, a good friend, is a very helpful book. And a book also by a good friend, Byron Brown, is called Soul Without Shame. And Soul Without Shame is even more of a workbook and very they're both really helpful books to work with self-criticism and shame and self-denigration and, and um, bring more awareness, more mindfulness and more kindness to our experience. We're just going to die. <laughs> no, I'm, and I mean it quite seriously. We're just going to die. Do you know how many people have died in the history of the world? You know, it's something like... Um, I, don't, I can't remember if it's 200,000 or 2 million people die every day. You know, we're just going to die. Why are we being so hard on ourselves? Really. It, it's an interesting contemplation. And I, I don't mean to be nihilistic, but to just start to see, oh, maybe, maybe this criticism is not the way to freedom. Maybe it's not the way to mature or to... <coughs> learn more or to develop more which it tells us it's going to help us do we're going to get better we're going to be right we're going to be more acceptable so the contemplation of death can be a very important contemplation in starting to see what, how do we really want to live our lives so we need to stop here let's sit for a minute please Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.